Welcome to the Arizona Society of CPAs podcast. All right. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another segment of the ASCPA's Inside the Legislature. I'm John Bomber, Director of Government Relations for the Society, and with me today is Senator T.J. Shope of Legislative District 8 and Representative Daniel Hernandez of Legislative District 2 and, of course, ASCPA lobbyist Ryan Demetta. Thank you all for being here to give an update to the ASCPA. We appreciate your taking the time, especially during this busy part of session. There's a lot going on at the legislature right now, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. The 2021 session has been one that's fairly unique. As we near the end, uh, fingers crossed, what are your thoughts on how the session has been handled so far? And I'll go ahead and ask Senator Shope that question first. Well, thanks for having me on. First of all, John, I appreciate the invitation. This is a uh, second consecutive day that Mr. Hernandez and I have been on a panel together. So uh, we're, we're getting used to it, I think. But, um, uh, you know, I think it's been interesting. Obviously, COVID has, has had changed the latter part of last session and definitely changed the entirety of this session in the sense that there were, you know, uh, none of the fine folks from whether it's your organization or other organizations uh, who really were able to spend much time at all uh, at the Capitol this year, which is unfortunate, obviously. And some of the little talked about things that oftentimes bring lawmakers together in a more personal way than a professional way, uh, like, you know, whether the lunches on the lawn, the evening events that occur, the breakfasts that often occur, where uh, member to member across the aisle, a lot of times we get to know each other on a the the way that uh, uh, the Daniel and I have gotten to know each other. I guess would be the best way of saying that. You know, sit down, you have a uh, you know maybe a drink in hand and a plate of, of hors d'oeuvres in the other, and you're just talking about what your interests are outside of the capital. Uh, and you know, none of that's gone on for well over a year now, and I think that you've seen that play out. Uh, really in the way that the session has gone with the, I would say, vitriol that's probably at a higher level than usual. The um, fact that you can't go just on uh, and say something publicly in a microphone, uh, perhaps. The first instinct is to take to Twitter or or other forms of social media uh, to express yourself. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think that uh, it's all been fairly negative uh, from that perspective. The one positive that has existed for me anyway, and I think that maybe Mr. Hernandez is probably in the same boat since we represent districts where you're not driving back and forth every day, is that this platform has allowed me to even in session give updates to different you know business organizations or other community organizations through the session. And even during the middle of the day, when otherwise I would not be able to participate in those organizations whatsoever. Absolutely. I think that's probably a silver lining, if you want to call it that, for, for everything that's gone on is definitely a, an, an ability to pivot to this new platform. But I appreciate the, the sentiments. And uh, Representative Hernandez, uh, what is your take on the session so far? You know, I agree with Senator Shope. So during the last year, and now we're past a year because we're in May and we're still dealing with COVID to an extent, I think we had a lot of really weird things happen. So we had a very contentious election, which we're still kind of fighting about even now. We're still in this weird time where um, there are certain members of this House, at least, 
that have come in with a mentality that they don't need to meet with anyone, that they know everything and that they don't have to work with anyone. And in my, this is my 13th year coming to the Capitol, not as a legislator, but just in general, I started coming when I was 18. So I've had 13 sessions under my belt. This is going to be my 14th actually. And I've never seen a freshman class that is so averse to actually working and talking to other people. And it's not just been on the Republican side, it's been on the Democratic side as well. So for me, when I became a freshman, one of the first things I did was I said, okay, who are the players? How am I going to build a relationship with them? And how am I going to make sure that I'm going to every single event where there might be other lawmakers, particularly Republicans, so that I can build relationships? My very first session, I said, I'm going to find the most conservative person in this building who I can work with something on. And I did. And I worked with uh, then Representative Maria Sims on a bill the following year. This year, I've noticed that the freshmen just don't interact with each other. I think half of the freshmen on the Republican side and half the freshmen on the Democratic side couldn't tell you the names of their colleagues if you pointed out who it was. So I think that's led to really downfall of the comedy that we usually have at the Capitol, where people have relationships They may not necessarily agree on issues, but they at least know each other as people. We've seen a real decline in that. A lot of that was attributed to, I think, COVID, because I wasn't even on the House floor for the first month and a half of session until I got fully vaccinated. So I was saying, I'm going to protect my health. My dad's in his 70s. He has pre-existing lung conditions. So that I can go home and visit my father, I'm not going to go to the House floor until I'm vaccinated and until he's vaccinated. So that meant that for me, usually... I'm on the House floor talking to members, hearing all the gossip, getting a sense of where things are. And now it's hard to do it via Zoom. It's even harder when you're a member to get a pulse on what's happening if you're not on the floor. So I was grateful that I was able to get vaccinated and go back to the floor. But that first month and a half, I literally had no idea what was going on day to day because I just couldn't talk to folks because text messages and Zooms are not enough to get a sense of like, Okay, are they a hard no on this bill? Are they a hard yes? And trying to figure out where folks are. I'd add to that that, you know, for what we do on behalf of the society, so much of the tax policy, very technical information, hard to consume. And to your point, trying to communicate that via text or through an email, they're just, it it doesn't happen. It's, uh, you know, that that in-person interaction is how these individuals are able to learn and, and, and get a better idea of what this legislation may be attempting to accomplish. And I would add that this sort of virtual wall (laughs) that has been the result of COVID allows them to respectfully hide behind that, say that you don't need to meet. It makes it easier. Whereas in normal circumstances, I'd grab one of you guys in the hall to say, hey, what do you think about this? Can we talk about this bill? And we just don't have that ability this year. So anyway. And it's not even just lobbyists because I did that same thing all the time. I'd literally go, and I did this with TJ a couple times. I'd go on the House floor and say, like, where are we on this? What's happening? Are we going to sign you died this week? And that's how you get to get The answer is no, by the way. The answer is no. (laughs) So I should have planned my vacation to Vegas this weekend. (laughs) Um, But that's the thing, that that one-on-one interaction, that personal interactions are so critical. And yet I have seen some of my freshman colleagues on both the Democratic and Republican side who have not met with some of the organizations that I'm like, I meet with them like on a weekly basis. What are you doing? Why haven't you talked to these folks? That's really disconcerting. And I think it's setting a bad precedent for folks that are new members of the legislature that they think they can come in and they don't have to meet with anyone. 
because I don't care how intelligent you are, the amount of information that you have to learn about the 2,000 bills that get introduced every year roughly is insane. So you are not a subject matter expert on everything and you have to rely on those that are. So that's why I'm glad that, you know, we have Ryan and John who, if there's an issue, they'll reach out to us and say, here's why this is important because I don't know everything about CPA issues. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, that's we're here to be a resource. And I just want to touch on that that subject a little bit more. Do you think, both of you, that the that there will be a lasting impact of this virtual and maybe a less personal legislature, uh, this first session going into the 2022 legislature? Will there be still some of that disconnect between members and maybe this dynamic that's developed because of Zoom and the pandemic? Well, I, I would say... Um that it's kind of twofold. Look, obviously, this is where people are, people are very influenced by their very first year or first term within the body, and they will oftentimes carry that the entire way. On the other side of this thing is, is 2022 is obviously an election year. You are more in direct uh, conflict, I would say, uh, because you, and, and add to it, that none of us know what districts we're going to be in uh, whatsoever. So everybody is kind of looking over their shoulder and or preparing their brilliant speech on the floor on a bill that's going to go viral and, and let them uh, have an even wider base to go on to social media and, and talk about issues with. So probably, I don't, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but you kind of look at it as kind of a, a almost a lost term. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we have to look forward to. But the, if there is one good thing about term limits, it's that, you know, there'll be a whole set of fresh faces after the 22 elections that come in in 23 that will not have experienced this. Uh, and hopefully at that point, we can really write the ship into the way things have been in my nine years at the Capitol. Yeah, absolutely. A pox on all the freshmen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think TJ's point is an important one which is the good habits are built and trained in your first session because it's not an election year. When you're in an election year, what you'll notice is a lot of posturing. I don't usually speak on the floor very often. I've probably spoken more in the last month than I have in the previous five years combined because there have been so many bills that are that posturing. So I'm used to the first year, everybody tries to work together. Everybody wants to work in a bipartisan manner. And this year, what I've noticed is people are already dug in because we're still litigating the 2020 election. So because of that, there are so many bills that keep getting brought up that I'll talk to some of my colleagues on both sides and they're like, yeah, we shouldn't be fighting this fight, but it's the fight we're going to have today. So you, your side will go and make three hours of speeches. Our side will make half an hour of speeches. Everybody feels like they got their video for the day. And that's how it's been going. And it's so disappointing because my first session as a lawmaker, we got so much done in a bipartisan way. Um, we were able to not only get to know each other as people and become friends, but we were able to actually work on some pretty major policy. And yet now I feel like talking about things like the budget, talking about some of these bigger items is really difficult because it's, okay, but how are you going to use this to screw me over? And that's not the mentality that you want to have when you're trying to negotiate. So when both sides already feel like the other side's trying to kind of inhibit their ability to get a win, it becomes right. really difficult to get to that bipartisan consensus. 
That being said, there's still some of us like myself and Mr. Shope that are still trying to find consensus when we can. But a lot of our colleagues, especially the newer ones, I think are a little bit more dug in than I think I'm used to. Um, So I'm hopeful that over the next couple of months, things will calm down and some of the tensions will kind of simmer down so that next year we don't start at like a 20 when we really should be like at a three or a four. (laughs) We'll have time to build for next session during the election. I would agree that that it seems that the sort of the hostile toxic election cycle that we just went through to your points, you know, Senator Shope and Representative Hernandez, that it's, it's disrupted the rhythm of how the freshmen get acclimated to the process. And, and so anyway, no, very interesting to hear some veterans, you know. Yeah. And, and I would argue that there's, there's another, there's another caveat to the, that um, I talk about pretty often. And that is, and this isn't necessarily a negative that, you know, from a, state point of view obviously i i wish it weren't the case but but uh as the state has gotten more purple you have more outside influences on both sides of the aisle that have come in to see that see this as a complete battleground and you know who truly do not want either side to work with each other because they are focused on the next election even if it may be two years away so there's a there's a ton of money that exists that and, and other influences and organizations that are that were probably not invested in Arizona for Absolutely. for decades that are now uh, have a very vested interest. And it's this mentality of don't give an inch, right? That yes. is really, I think, detrimental. So that's where I think there are two things that need to happen. One, those of us that are willing to work across the aisle and to get stuff done in a bipartisan manner need to keep in touch. So I need to do a better job of not just being on panels with TJ, but actually checking in with him every once in a while. <laughs> It's hard because now he's gone across the hall to the Senate. But I think the other thing, and this is something that I think is important, is it's really easy to kind of dwell on all the doom and gloom that we've been talking about for the last half hour. But the reality is once COVID is starting to die down, which I think we're at a place where we're really seeing a lot of things open back up, members are more comfortable meeting in person again. So for your members, I would say reach out to your lawmaker, invite them to coffee. Not this week, uh, maybe in a week or two after a session is done and start building that relationship because I can't tell you how valuable it is to have someone who's a subject matter expert, because when that happens, I know, Oh, I can just call John who I met a year ago who works on these issues. So that way it's not just relying on the lobbyists, but the people that are members, because we can check in and say, Hey, I have a question and you live in my district or you took the time to come and meet me for coffee. So I always recommend to folks, once the session is winding down or has died, go and reach out to your lawmakers or the people that you just feel like, oh, I think I might get along with this person. Let me reach out and see if I can grab coffee. I've had a couple of folks who have shadowed me and usually I get 10 to 20 people who shadow me per session. This year I've had two, but those people, we went out to lunch, we got to know each other and they got to see how the process works. So now when I have an issue related to multi-housing, I know that I can call one of the people who came and spent the day with me. And that makes it so much easier to kind of get information. Absolutely. Tying into those topics covered right now, you know, you mentioned not to get in touch with you this week. And that's of course, because we're in the middle of budget season. So I wanted to ask both of you as it relates to this next year's budget, you know, there's more money in the state than uh, I believe historically we've ever seen. And with federal relief dollars and everything considered, we're having quite a bit of a time to decide 
what to spend and in some cases what to cut. So I just want to ask both of you, what are some of your budget priorities as the legislature takes on the fiscal year 2022 budget? Uh, I think that for me, uh, you know, I was pretty clear that I had a priority of uh, infrastructure spending. Uh, and and I, I my number one portion of that was uh, additional dollars for Interstate 10 between Casa Grande and Phoenix. Uh, we currently have the Gila River Indian community at the table uh, to, to really begin uh, this process. We were successful, at least in this version of the budget. Not sure what, what happens with this version of the budget, uh, admittedly. Uh, we have the $50 million in there. And our hope is that we can work with our federal partners, draw down more money from the, from the federal government uh, in the form of a match, uh, and then obviously work with uh, MAG uh, as well. Uh, on on this and and uh, start the process of getting that freeway widened, which is a total pinch point between uh, Phoenix and Casa Grande, and frankly, uh, is a problem for intrastate commerce. Uh, uh, as as we know, the items that come in the Port of Long Beach, Port of of, of Los Angeles, uh, things that are loaded on trucks, they get to this point, and we lose so many man hours on that stretch of highway on a weekly basis. So. That's been a number one priority among a number of other things. I know that there's uh, uh, dollars in for water uh, mitigation studies and things like that. And we finally had the money to do a lot of these priorities. And I think that, yeah, there are plenty of things that you could point to and look at the budget and say, I don't like this. And trust me, there are plenty of things that I have pointed to and said that. And there are other things that, frankly, in my nine years down there, I've been working for tirelessly and we finally are able in in a position to do it that doesn't mean that we're going to have right now the votes to actually pass it uh you know obviously this is a lot of the conversation has occurred in a silo uh up until this point uh and and so we'll see we'll see how it goes as a member of the minority i have to be the faithful opposition on the budget unless we get more um because i think tj's point is really important there are a lot of really good investments in this initial set of the budgets, but there are also a couple of things that I think give me a lot of pause. You know, I've never been one who has taken a hard position on tax cuts and tax credits and exemptions. It's one of the frequent reasons why people come and meet with me in the business community because I'm not a blanket no. But when we're trying to balance the state budget and we have over a billion dollars in one-time dollars, I think investing in things that are one-time makes the most sense. So that's why I think the expansion and the widening of the I-10, perfect sense, mostly because I'm on it all the time, but also because it is good for commerce. It's good for the state. And that one-time investment doesn't just go to one person or one individual. It is something that will have a trickle-down effect because what we will do is we will spend money buying the materials. We'll spend money paying the workers. Those people will go to restaurants. They'll pay for things. So it has a really, I think, positive impact on the economy when we're investing in some of these infrastructure projects. When we look at broadband infrastructure, that's another one that I think we are woefully behind where we need to be. I represent all of Santa Cruz County, and there are parts of my county that you can't get a cell phone signal or broadband. So when everybody transitioned to online, one of my opponents in my primary, he couldn't even log into our Zoom debate and had to do it from his car because he didn't have a stable enough Wi-Fi connection. And like I said it during my debate, I'd love to at some point be in a place where my opponent can log into Zoom and I'm not having to worry about his internet connection. This is one of the things where 
There are so many one-time investments that we can make right now that'll pay long-term dividends, whether it's hard infrastructure like roads and bridges or whether it's things like broadband. The other thing that I think we really need to concentrate a little bit on is making sure that when we're making some of these investments, that we're maximizing federal drawdowns. To TJ's point, if we kick in this much, the feds will kick in three, four, five times as much depending on the topic. So one example is my sister has a bill on the area agencies on aging, which helps provide services for older Arizonans. And right now the budget has $1 million. If we bumped it up to $2.5 million, and remind you, we have almost a billion dollars of one-time dollars, we would draw down about $30 million from the feds to help provide additional resources. So to me, the return on the investment of let's bump it up to three and a half million to draw down that maximum federal impact, it's a no brainer. And yet we're not going to be able to probably do that this budget cycle because we have some folks who are saying government waste, pork barrel spending. When we look at some of the investments, it's not just oh, we're giving the University of Arizona wind tunnel for a vanity project. It's we're giving the U of A a wind tunnel so they can be a service provider for some of the folks like Raytheon and some of the other aerotech companies so that we can make sure that the University of Arizona becomes more self-sustainable. So these are the things where I think a lot of times it's really easy to kind of dig in and say, this is pork barrel spending. This is bad spending. Let's do another tax cut. But the reality is some of these investments now will help stabilize when we don't have good years and when we are in the red, not in the black. I'd say I have to really agree with that. I've always been blown away when we don't want to fund certain programs at the level that draws down that federal match because that that federal money is going to be distributed regardless, except now it's just going to go for a bridge in Alaska rather than widening the I-10 in Arizona. Right. And 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 I think one of the biggest ones is the aviation fund. Uh, I know that one is probably one of the more outrageous, positive for us anyway, uh, yeah. federal matches that we that we receive. And uh, I think we the budget uh, anticipates putting 18 million into that and the drawdown will be tremendous. And I know that that's and this is kind of that push and pull effect that we see right now where the very things that people have asked for to be on the budget and I would say to accept a tax proposal that is on the table are the very things that others say are the reason that they are off the budget. So this is a <laughs> tremendous uh, direct conflict uh, uh, with it, which leads me to have uh, maybe a little bit less than 50% confidence level in what we're going to be doing this week. Yeah. albeit yeah. as a, as a yes vote at this point in time. And to TJ's point, we need to get to 16, 31 and one. That doesn't necessarily have to be all Republicans. And I keep joking with Gina Cobb. I'm going to be a cheaper date than some of your your friends who are saying, here's $400 million in spending cuts that we want to do. I'm like, Gina, you have these people who are getting all these other members to jump off the budget because this is all they're asked. Just come to us and here's what we're asking for. I'm hopeful that we'll find some way to have some bipartisan agreement, even if it's not necessarily on the tax cut package. You both touched on that tax cut package. And uh, of course, it was introduced yesterday, I believe late morning or early afternoon. But I want to get both of your thoughts on the core of that, which is the 2.5% flat income tax that's going to be phased in over two years. Yeah. Look, it's it's undoubtedly the largest tax cut in Arizona's history. And it's something that, you know, I think 
kind of like Mr. Hernandez, frankly, uh, if you know about me, I've never served on appropriations, never been on, on, on some of these other committees. And there's a reason that's the tax policy is a tax policy. I trust the other, uh, many of the other members that it's going to be something I am comfortable with. And, and uh, other folks, we both know them, get really into the weeds with this stuff. And it's really exciting to them and, and things like that. And I have that same feeling about other issues as well. So I completely understand uh, where they're coming from. Uh, but I do believe that, you know, this is obviously the flashpoint of where we are. Uh, if this was not on the table, we would probably be in a different situation uh, as far as trying to gather votes. Uh, but I do, do believe that the governor is very dug in uh, on, the, uh, on the flat tax, and there's, there's no doubt about it. But the, you know, there are other folks that have genuine concerns. I mean, you look at the uh, cities and towns across the state because of the uh, distribution policies that the voters have passed uh, many, many years ago. I think in the 70s, uh, you know, the, of, of what they rely on from the state, you know, to, to be able to not uh, pull the rug from under them. And many of them in, in my district, I look at the very small towns, uh, some that maybe even new people to Arizona have never heard of, like Mammoth or Hayden and Winkleman, who have literally hundreds of people that live in those communities. Uh, the, uh, the immediate pooling of of dollars from those communities could mean that town goes without a police officer. Uh, so we have to look at all these things. And that's not to say that I don't support what we're trying to do, but we do need to take a very holistic approach on, on what, uh, what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I think for me, when I look at tax policy, I always look at what is the return on the investment that we're hoping to get? And also what is going to be the impact on those that are the least able to kind of mitigate them in another way. So to TJ's point, I have a town called Patagonia. It's less than a thousand people. They have three marshals. That is the entire law enforcement department for this small town. If they were to have the reduction in shared revenue from the state, they would likely have to reduce an already strange force of three people who take shifts 24 hours long to maybe two or maybe one and a half. So for me, while I do think that tax cuts can be a good thing, and there have been several tax cuts and credits that I've supported, when I look at the potential impact on localities, particularly the smaller ones, because the city of Tucson can absorb the hit. The city of Phoenix will always find a way, Maricopa County will always find a way to absorb a reduction. But when I'm talking about these small towns, that even if they were to raise sales taxes in their locality by two cents which would be insane because it, we already have some of the highest uh, sales tax rates, it wouldn't be enough to make up the loss and the reduction of state shared revenue for these really small localities. So it's concerning. Um, I don't know how we fix it if we have an ongoing cut through the flat tax, because even if we were to find a way to mitigate it for the first two years, which I know is one of the proposals that's being talked about, there's going to be a cliff where, okay, we hold you harmless for the first year, two years, maybe three years, but then in year four, you're going to see a massive drop. So I think in anything that we do, we need to phase it in and phase things out so that there's a ramp up period. So if we are going to have a reduction in revenue for localities, that they don't feel one big hit and instead they feel it over time. So that way they are able to better prepare and manage as much as they can. 
That being said, I'm not sure that a lot of our smaller towns and cities will be able to manage if we keep the current tax proposal. I think a lower proposal might be a little bit more palatable to folks. Um, so we'll see what happens. I'm not expecting this week for us to actually have a budget that passes. Um, I think it's one of the things that we learned two years ago when we had two members of the Senate who were Republicans who stayed off the budget. They stayed off the budget and the House passed something, got to the Senate, and then they had something called a trailer bill that came to the Senate from the Senate to the House and failed 57 or 58 to two or something. So I think the people that are in the Senate that are off the budget right now have probably learned the lesson that if it's not in the budget that gets passed, it's not going to be in the final version. So I think what we're going to see is people digging in to make sure that their priorities are in there, which means uh, we'll either have to have some unanimity amongst the Republican caucus, which I haven't really seen all session long, or they're going to have to find a way to find that balance and that equilibrium of tax cut, but also spending that I think would be good for the state to try and get a couple of Democrats. So I'm not completely, I think, opposed to the idea of it being a bipartisan budget. And I think the longer we're here and it's just Republicans arguing with Republicans, there might be a couple of folks in leadership that say, well, you know, maybe we do want to spend that $20 million on the pet projects for these three representatives or this one senator. Um, because it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper and e earlier than staying in until July 1st and having to reset the clock. Good point, Representative Hernandez. I've forgotten about the trailer bill in the budget. That And you're absolutely right. So you dig in on the budget because you know that, that there's no guarantee that that trailer bill makes it to the governor. So, well, I was going to ask Senator Shope uh, to Representative Hernandez's point. Do you see you know, there, there have been public and maybe not so public positions made by members of the Republican caucus on both sides of the Capitol Mall with concerns as it relates to the 2.5 flat tax. Do you see that staying in as an integral part of this budget? Or do you think there's some compromise or changes made that make it more palatable for the, for the broader caucus? I see us... Um, Perhaps, you know, first off, let me just say, I don't believe the governor signs a budget right now uh, without it. Uh, and I think he's been very clear about that. At least that's been communicated uh, and through a lot of avenues. I do believe that they feel that this is an opportunity to go ahead and do this uh, at this point in time and an opportunity that may never happen again. Uh, so you have that uh, situation. Perhaps that means that at some point, to Mr. Hernandez's point, we put together uh, a package that maybe doesn't have all of that in it, but it gets it gets out of both chambers. I do think that the governor feels empowered enough on this position to go ahead and be comfortable vetoing that entire package. You know, when you get into the last year or two of a term, you kind of start thinking about your own legacy. And I think that this is a legacy project for him. Absolutely. So I guess to both of you, what is your, your best guesstimate on when the budget finally coalesces and something arrives on Governor Ducey's desk for him to sign? June 29th at 11.58 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I think, it, I think we go well into June. Wow. Okay. And our per diem got cut, so we're not making the fancy, what is it, 60 bucks a day, TJ? We're making like 10 bucks a day now? Correct. <laughs> and even that hasn't been enough of an incentive to get people to work together. So exactly. <laughs> you gotta find a different character stick, I guess. That's right. 
touching on uh, both of those uh, topics that we've, we've referenced earlier, I kind of want to get your sense. Uh, you're both very successful lawmakers uh, and you've had pretty steady uh, careers doing this and you, you know, seem to do a good job at it. So I want to ask how you advance your policy priorities uh, in this specific legislature when there's a one vote margin on both the Senate and the House side, and you really need to have all of your, your ducks in a, in a row, so to speak, before you can get something through. Yeah, well, I think that uh, that's a very good question. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things that the legislation you run, you need to make sure you've done your homework. You need to make sure people are comfortable with it. You need to, have, in my opinion, anyway, had a, a relatively robust stakeholder process, which in this environment is a little difficult because of the uh, pandemic situation or that we're coming out of. But, you know, I think that we, we do our best. I had upwards of, I think, 40 bills this year. Many of them got out. Some of them didn't. And that's that's the way it goes in every session. Uh, and we really have to prioritize uh, the ones. And you have to, uh, to me, frankly, you have to be honest as a, as a legislator, just as lobbyists are asked to be honest with us. If you don't have the votes for something, if you can't get it through, then it's to me, it's better to go ahead and make sure you've had that conversation with the folks who may be relying on that uh, uh, piece of legislation to go forward. I mean, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, the honesty and the honest brokers in us is really the only thing that we truly have down there. I think, honestly, my priority, once I saw the way that the 2020 election went, was less about being proactive and really being reactive and trying to kill as many bills as possible. So I was on the opposite side of um, where Mr. Shope was, where I was having to learn and make sure that I was making my bills move through the process. And it really became a, okay, let me do an analysis of which are the bills that will cause harm to Arizonans and harm to Arizona's reputation. Because I think one of the things that I've been really concerned about having worked with the business community for the last five years is there are a lot of bills that cause reputational harm that make it harder to attract businesses. So there are some issues that you normally don't see the business community weighing in on that I think they started to weigh on because when they look at it, they say, this is going to be something that's going to put Arizona in the headlines in a negative way. So I've been working on most of that. There are a couple of policies that I worked on that I think were a little bit smaller because again, when we were in the minority, it's really hard to get any of your bills heard. And this year I said, okay, I can either fight for my bills or try and make sure that I stop some of the things that I think might have lasting repercussions. So I made the choice. I'm gonna sign on to a couple of bills that I think will get out of the legislature. But most of my time is gonna be spent on playing defense and tackling and stopping a couple of things that I think were really problematic. I think really two things that, that came to mind there. One is that, you know, this is a process of incremental victories. We say, you know, how do you eat an elephant? And that's one bite at a time. And so I think that's a good way to do it. The other is that with these one vote margins, you know, what I've been seeing is that a lot of the bills that seem to have landed on the governor's desk are really what I call sort of COVID do-overs. And that speaks to when the process was functioning, you know, normally uh, before we shut it down as a result of COVID, what I'm seeing is the information that folks were able to sort of uh, absorb and, you know, to vote on these bills carried over into this session. A lot of the major issues that are brand new as of 2021 
are faltering because these substantive discussions aren't happening. I mean, to your point, Senator Shope, stakeholder processes aren't occurring. And we have, as we spoke about earlier, a lot of freshmen who think that they've come in with all of the answers. And I would submit that as long as I've been doing this, and I don't mean this disrespectfully in any way, but the most dangerous policymakers are the ones who think they know everything. And the most effective policymakers are the ones that stay in their strike zone and then work with others who they know are experts in the other areas where they may be lacking that information or that experience. And so that's my little two cents. No, I think that's a good point, Ryan. And to our earlier point at the beginning of all this, you know, hopefully the in-person aspect returns in 2022 or leading up to it. And some of that interpersonal relationship building can take place. And, you know, being an election year, all things considered, uh, maybe a little bit more uh, cohesive policymaking down there at uh, 1700. To wrap things up, because you all have been so generous with your time, I just have a couple final questions to ask you. You've, you've both been there for a while now, and you're, you're seasoned lawmakers, so you know the ins and outs of all of this. But I wanted to ask, if there was one thing that you could reform about the legislative process in Arizona, what would that be? I think for me, uh, and you've seen me talk about it uh, uh, several times and be supportive of Senator Mesnard's uh, bill this year, Arizona represents the second most amount of people uh, and the House members represent the second most amount of people in the United States. It's getting to a point with the limited staff that we have and no district offices, no really way to to really effectively uh, uh, represent in a lot of respects. Uh, we, we need to consider uh, expanding at the very least the size of the House of Representatives and probably in the process going to single house districts. Right away, if you're at 220, which we represent around 220,000 people as of the last census, if you go ahead and at least go to 60 individual house districts instead of the 30, you know, kind of co-branded that we have, uh, you go from that 220 to 110, right? But the reality is our state's not going to stop growing. We need to plan for what the future of Arizona is. And if we're going to continue to, and I think we will, to be a part-time relatively small uh, staff, things like that, then we probably need to go ahead and look at making sure that we can expand that as uh, as soon as possible. Very interesting. Yeah, I think TJ hits an important point, which is I literally don't have a staff member. I have a half-time assistant who I share with another representative. And I think this disparity amongst the majority and the minority means that I'm less able to be responsive to my constituents. During the pandemic, there would be times where businesses would call me and I'd have to get on the phone with a bank and call and say, I need someone to call this nonprofit or this business back. So there's only so much you can do when you're one individual who is a part-time legislator and you have a part-time assistant. So I think moving towards a model where we have more staff would be really helpful. The other thing that they could do is potentially allowing us to have like fellows who get college credit. So that way we have somebody who's assigned to us to help us with policy. We have majority and minority policy staff, but these poor people are staffing 29 members in the Democratic caucus and 31 in the Republican caucus. It's difficult for them to get that time to dig in. And if every member is asking 25 different questions, that one staffer is now spending all their time just responding to requests from members as opposed to doing research that's proactive. One other thing that I think we would be better off if we did is similar to what a couple of states do, like Colorado, 
where you have a requirement that every member have at least one bill heard, because I think everybody would benefit from knowing what the process is like and understanding the need for like the stakeholder process. It doesn't mean that everybody gets a bill passed. It means that everybody at least has to go through the process once. Because I have some colleagues in my caucus who have served eight years in one chamber and have never had a bill actually get all the way through, let alone having more than one bill heard in committee. Alma got like six or seven bills heard in committee this year. Orlando Teller, same thing. But that's not something that I think is great because then they're getting all the experience on the committee process where a lot of my other colleagues literally don't understand how the process works. And they've been in the legislature sometimes as much as eight years or longer they've gone from one chamber to another. And I I could not agree with that answer more uh, from both of you that, I mean, everybody, I think at least on, on, in this discussion knows that, that I work closely with my father and he's been doing this. His first legislative session was in 1979. So I can't necessarily speak to anything before that, but it has been the same staff to member ratio since he has been doing this. And if you think about the digital age that we operate in, the ability of your constituents to communicate with you, the flow of information, I would argue the engagement is so much more of the availability, the, the, the ability to engage is so much greater than it used to be. And you just need more resources to engage and help your constituents. Just out of curiosity, uh, Senator Shope, you had mentioned that this was a legislation introduced by Senator Mesnard. I don't think that that has gone anywhere. Uh, it might be stalled at this point. But would either of you suspect that something like that ends up passing and going to the voters in the next session or a couple of years? You know, it's just one of those things. I think it's going to be a discussion point. It's, but I do believe that it's an opportunity uh, for, for coalitions. And I, I think that perhaps it, that's what was not uh, a part of the conversation this year, right? Uh, but you get coalitions on the left and on the right uh, that would uh, potentially come together in kind of a grand, you know, reform of what things look like. So that way, frankly, both sides keep each other honest and it's not viewed as a power grab by one side or the other. Well, as we uh, finish up this version of Inside the Legislature, and of course you are both very busy dealing with the end of session and the budget cycle. So I just want to ask, um, as we potentially near the end of this, you said, I think both of you well into June for the budget, but what is your prediction for adjourning the session sine die in 2021? I think it's the same, well into June. We don't really have a ton of bills left. Uh, so uh, I think that we go ahead and float this trial balloon. If it passes this week, fantastic. Then that means we're out of here before Memorial Day, which is always a goal of mine. Uh, if not, it looks like we get to come back. And everybody I know loves wearing a suit and tie uh, in gym in Phoenix. Absolutely. I would agree. I think once the budget is done, we'll either sign you die right then or immediately uh, shortly after. I don't see us staying in longer because there aren't that many bills left um, that need to go through the process. So once the budget is done, I anticipate that we'll be wrapping up. Very good. So Ryan, you're going to be wearing that suit for at least another month. You're going to force me to do it. You know what? And I got to tell you on our end, we always say no vacation plans before July one. So hopefully other members will start to get that memo. (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule uh, to come speak with the members of the ASCPA and we'll let you get back to your your very busy job down at the legislature, but thank you all for taking the time. Thanks for having us. Oh, thank you guys. 